Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, the not-so-new editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by Andrew Sims, who's an economist, writer and an activist who co-authored The Green New Deal. In a recent feature for Prospect, Sims argued that our behaviour during the pandemic illustrates that we're both capable and willing to make massive changes to our lives in response to major threats. So why, when facing a crisis as existential as climate change, are we dragging our heels? So to kick off, Andrew, in in recent weeks, uh, in fact this very week, there have been alarming reports about the unprecedented high temperatures in Antarctica. On Monday, a new report from the IPPC warned governments that emissions must peak by 2025 to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Just give us a a roundup to begin begin with on where we currently are with climate change. Where we are with climate change is that um, just about three or four years ago, we were told that in order to prevent potentially irreversible, got a domino effect in the climate which could lead to greater and increasing extremes we would need rapid unprecedented and immediate changes in almost every sector of our lives it's something that we've known for a long time it's tempting to feel that almost nothing has happened since then but of course there are things happening in terms of um, rising awareness of the need to switch energy supplies but in some of the big areas that the scientists pointed to back then about the need to radically reduce our consumption which has the knock-on effect on our energy use in areas around transport in areas around food and the way in which we power and, and heat our homes there simply hasn't been remotely the kind of action which is in line with what the science is saying and and the peaks and troughs and people often think I suppose that climate change or global heating as people prefer to call it now to give it a kind of closer idea of the negative impact that it has on you is a sort of smooth and gradual approach that a thing which will be happening over a period of time but as you said in the last 12 months we've seen record-breaking extremes in all different kinds of weather um, systems whether it's been in in runaway fires in across several different continents or rapid ice loss at both poles of the planet we're already living through and seeing the kind of things which we are going to experience worse off and also this is coupled with the fact that one of the reasons where um it's going to sort of hit us all and not just 
people on the other side of the planet is that with so many people living in cities, cities tend to kind of exaggerate the effect as well. You get this kind of heat island effect. So um, it's, it's a situation in which we need to be we need to be braced. And if we're going to turn it around, um, we're going to need to act as the, as the scientists are saying sort of right now. Your piece, I think, was an interesting one because it's easy to get terribly gloomy and fatalistic about climate change. But I, the, the, the main thrust of your piece was to say, well, COVID, terrible though it was, showed that as a society we are capable of remarkable change and remarkably rapid change. That was a cheerful thought. Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to just elaborate on that, that theme? Well, I, I suppose it's because it feels slightly counterintuitive, even though um, we know for a fact that change is inevitable, because if we sort of look behind us in the rearview mirror, we can see how things were very, very different um, five years ago, 10 years ago, or, or longer ago. But I think we find it harder to imagine things being different um, in the future. One of the old cliches is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is a fundamental change to our economic system. But I think that belies the reality of our agency and our ability for change. And I think we have these moments, these sort of inflection points, when we suddenly discover how quickly we can do things. These have happened sporadically throughout history, whether at the end of the Cold War, um, poignantly at the moment with so many eyes upon energy policy at the time of the OPEC crisis was another one. Another great moment of unprecedented change and previously unimaginable change was the response to the financial crisis. But perhaps possibly the biggest of all of these in the way in which it affected us so comprehensively was during the pandemic, where almost literally overnight, um, the policy book and our habits were sort of turned on their head. We switched from being regular commuters to those who could, a large proportion of people um, working from home. Our transport patterns, our travel patterns changed, our shopping patterns changed, our eating patterns changed. Instead of eating out in restaurants, people were cooking from home again. And in fact, what was interesting is that with a number of these things, these behavioural changes were happening at the same time that we were seeing major infrastructure changes and major policy changes. So we redesigned our urban space in our town centres to create more space for people walking and cycling, active travel. There was a brief period of time in which um, famously now we heard the sound of birdsong in our towns and cities as well as the streets went quiet. One of the things which perhaps we would have considered the hardest thing to change, to change our driving patterns. That happened. Um, and interestingly, we were acting by, in the sense of putting public health and safety and public interest before short-term profit. But there were other sort of um, fine grain changes to the way that we lived. People with a bit more time on their hands at home suddenly found that they were kind of clearing out and mending old clothes. They were relearning how to um, cook food. And that's another kind of huge resource saving. If you're cooking at home, there's much less waste involved than sort of eating out in restaurants. So pretty much in every walk of our lives, from our work to our sort of habits in the kitchen, to things we were doing around the home, finding uh, the time and the space and the wherewithal to kind of mend things, we were almost inadvertently doing those things which are part of a far greener lifestyle and a, and a far less wasteful lifestyle. The extraordinary thing, as you say, uh, about the COVID crisis was that it happened overnight and in response to uh, near and present danger. Just talk us through the, the scale of change that's going to be required to avert a, a climate catastrophe. So COVID was clearly an extraordinary uh, event 
And, and as you described, many of the ways in which people had to change the, the, their entire behavior. On what order of magnitude is the change that's going to be required to combat climate change? Well, I think I think some of the changes that we experienced during the pandemic, actually, as well as some of the changes that we've kind of um, experienced in in some of those other examples that I mentioned, when there's been sort of big external energy shocks or where there was the big financial crisis, um, in terms of making the kind of scale of resources available, I think the scale of resources that were made available in the face of the pandemic and in the face of the financial crisis are of a similar order to the sorts of resources we need to be tapping into to bring about the low carbon transition of the UK economy. And interestingly enough, the amount of um, money that was magicked from um, the magic money tree we were told didn't exist in in the form of that technically phrased quantitative easing, giving it a kind of a nice technical name so as not to get people's hopes up and too excited about its, its possibility in other areas. But if had that money instead of being used in such a way that it just sort of washed through into inflating luxury asset prices in various markets had been purposed towards uh, the retrofitting of the UK housing stock, for example, so that now we wouldn't be in the grip of the energy price shock. Had that money been used in that way, we would already have been well on the way to the kind of change that is needed in the UK. But I think if you walk through the big ticket items of change, one is getting demand down for energy. That's the big retrofit programme. That fits very neatly with what we need to do in terms of the um, much vaunted levelling up policy agenda for the UK, in terms of creating jobs in all the parts of Britain where they're needed, in terms of creating more comfortable homes and reducing our energy bills and our energy use. If you look through some of the kind of the big dietary changes, they're things which are already underway in some senses, and that's moving to much more sort of plant-based diets. And I think the sophistication with which people are adapting to that is already, you know, we've, we've moved on a long way from the Greg's vegan sausage roll, which was kind of introduced as a bit of a joke, but then sparked a, a Me Too effect amongst other food makers. But where this country, the UK in particular, has fallen behind a lot of other countries is in the stable and orderly approach to bringing about those changes. We've created almost the, the the worst possible policy scenario for bringing about that change in the UK because it's been so inconsistent, because incentives have been introduced and then policies have been changed overnight. But broadly speaking, we're looking at changing the building stock in the UK so that it needs less energy in the first place, shifting our energy supplies quicker than we have been onto renewables. And that's going to involve, for example, removing the de facto um, ban that there's been on onshore wind because the costs of solar and wind power have fallen off a cliff and they're rapid and quick and economically advantageous to introduce. And, And then the big transport shifts as well. We need to electrify our transport network but we also need to make the shift towards much more uh, sort of public transport being a a default rather than the poor relation even in the shift to electric vehicles we still see the prioritization of cars in urban space which has other knock-on effects and making it less people friendly so walking through those things the big energy changes in terms of what we generate in terms of how we reduce the amount that we use dietary changes so that we move to a much more plant-based diet, different ways of getting around so that we're using public transport and more 
more active travel. Now, the good thing about all of these is that they bring about the right kind of economic stimulus. They bring about huge health and personal well-being benefits. Um, and they're incredibly good for the economy as well. The difference, I guess, between COVID and climate change is that with COVID, nobody had any choice, did they? These were compulsory measures that were, in most countries, as you say, adopted at a great speed, and they were enforceable by law. You flesh out what the latest thinking is on, and I don't know if this is a psychological question or a political question or an economic question, but I mean, the big problem with climate change is that it, it's still something that people, most people find hard to imagine. It's still a very contested thing. There are, I guess there are fewer outright deniers around, but there are lots of people who come up with all kinds of reasons not to act. What's the latest thinking on, on how you persuade people? I, mean, you, I think you said you're a skeptic of nudge. Nudge is not going to do it for us. So what is going to do it for us? Well, I think... The interesting thing is that the government's own former behavioural insights team, dubbed the nudge unit, have themselves concluded that nudging is no longer enough. And I think the only thing which is really contested now is not that it is a problem and that global heating is happening, but what to do about it. But I suppose that the analogy with the pandemic is an interesting one too because of course the way in which countries have responded to it around the world has varied enormously and and the and that has had different impacts in terms of mortality rates and some of the countries that were late and perhaps a little inconsistent in their action like the UK and the United States have saw very bad mortality rates and so I think there's there are always choices in the way that one responds to this I think the differences at the moment is it is a psychological step I think the big difference is accepting that we need to act and accepting and seeing that there are enormous benefits for action. I think um, one of the reasons, one of the further reasons, is sort of the inertia of the way that we're locked into how we do things at the moment. And yes, there are vested interests who make money out of fossil fuels and the way things are, and they have the ear of government. But we also, if we look around us, um, see constant reinforcement of the kind of polluting lifestyles that not only are bad for the climate, but that are bad for us as well. And one of the analogies perhaps that we saw from an earlier public health issue which required action, issues around around smoking, where you've seen a kind of a huge behavioural shift, there was an understanding there that you needed to stop kind of advertising cigarettes in order to remove the cultural sort of endorsement of that activity. Now, at the moment, if we kind of um, turn on the TV, watch a football game you know open a magazine we see adverts for sports utility vehicles we see adverts for long-haul um, holiday trips by plane around the world and if you turn on oh, up until very recently until the conflict in ukraine if you watched a european championship football game you would have seen adverts for gazprom as well so at the moment we live in a situation and what perhaps one of the psychological reasons why we haven't accepted the need for change is because the behaviours which are locked in to this kind of very polluting way of being are constantly endorsed and validated 
around us in our cultural environment. I think that's something that needs to change. I think the lesson that we took from the move beyond smoking of sort of removing the advertising is, is, a, is a kind of a low-hanging fruit thing that we could do for this. I think the other things that we can do, of course, is draw the dots that when the big um, extreme weather events occur in the reporting of those events constantly drawing the connections between things I don't think people often make the link between what's happened and the climate problem I think people quite often don't make the link between some of their individual behaviors like taking flights and the consequences that that has so I think there's lots of ways in which we can strengthen the understanding of the cause and effect link between how things are at the moment and how thing how things need to change um and also, we've got to keep making the case of the benefits of action, of how it can not only have an economically stimulating effect at a time when there's all kinds of problems and you can stimulate the economy in a way in which doesn't play into some of the other classic economic fears around inflation, for example, because you're you know, actually boosting demand for the things that, that, uh, that are needed and wanted. So I think it's 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 down to us to see that. But we've also got to call out where the lock-ins are, whether it's the infrastructure lock-in, whether it's the economic lock-in, because we're not paying the real price for these things, or whether it's the cultural lock-in, because all around us, we still see images of very polluting ways of living and running the economy. Those are the things that have to change. In your piece, you have some quite comforting figures about public opinion, suggesting that public opinion is rather ahead of the politicians and, and, and the, the public have woken up to the need. Why, why do you think that's not feeding through into our politics, uh, either in terms of the, the urgency or, or the priority that political parties are, are giving this? I think there's always a, a degree to which it's sort of... Um governments lead from behind and um, this one perhaps more so than others i think what we see in the it's a very specific situation in the uk at the moment you've got a a, a very small but, but sort of hardcore group who perhaps have built their identity around resistance to certain ideas um but i don't think they're doing their constituents or anybody else any favors um, by doing this because they're um, continuing to embed and entrench uh, a a way of life in the UK, an economy in the UK, which is quite literally kind of poisoning our air, undermining our economic chances, slowing down our conversion and the you know the ability that we might have to kind of take advantage of these changes. And I think the speed, with, even with which, I mean, not only is the public head of them, I think the speed with which um, major industrial sectors can respond and to the crisis and move beyond it has, was also demonstrated by the by the pandemic. I'm reminded of the ways in which, for example, you know the speed with which some textile companies moved to making personal protective equipment, the way in which some brewers and perfume makers moved in the same direction, the way that some car engineers like the Formula One engineers helped hospitals by innovating low cost, quick production, breathing um, apparatus. And I kind of look around at other examples like the Swiss railways where with most of the aviation industry grounded, they started retraining pilots to be train, train drivers. Um, so I, I, I think... There is, without doubt, a problem of culture wars around the issues in that some people have sort of built a political identity around a sort of a denial of the stuff upon which we, you know, all life depends, um, a, a, a confusion around the importance between that which is ecologically practical and that which is considered sort of economically or politically pragmatic. And I think that's something that we need to kind of turn on its head. Um, that said, I do think it's a very, very small number of people. And I think that 
the general awareness and understanding of what needs to change has moved on um, dramatically. But um, we are being slowed down by those forces. There's a theory, isn't there, that that, that democracies are, are going to struggle here because of the, 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 the lack of really connection between where the public is and what is considered politically acceptable and that it's going to need slightly... Um, big stick government, more autocratic forms of government are going to uh, be the ones who are going to have to lead the way because they don't re- rely so much on public opinion. We've already seen this week Boris Johnson already watering down his plans on wind farms because people don't like them. Is is that something you, you, you accept? There's this, this um, scepticism about whether whether democracy is a form of government that is actually going to deliver what we need i think in some ways actually the opposite exactly the opposite is true for, for first up where wind power is concerned what's dram- dramatically been proven and demonstrated time and again is that the moment you give a community a stake and an interest and an ownership over renewable power generation and wind farms they become incredibly popular and the more that people I- I experience them up close and, and personal and where community-owned schemes are concerned the acceptance and popularity of them goes through the roof and the other way in which the public at, at the gr- at a sort of a grassroots level of, of daily democracy it shows a much more positive picture is that wherever there have been practical examples of people organizing citizens assemblies citizens juries kind of daily democracy type engagement where people are um, exposed to the facts get the opportunity to learn about the issue then the the radical the support for more um, I was you could call them radical you could call them realistic perhaps more realistic proposals which go a lot further goes up significantly in all the cities where this has been done and at a national level in France where this has been done and you're seeing some national policies being introduced uh, in France with regard to that putting climate warnings on car adverts for example wherever you properly engage people and you have a sort of a deliberative democratic approach to things then support for more progressive and radical action goes up not down so I think the answer to that is to have much more of a kind of a grassroots on town hall approach to engaging people about this just talk us through finally andrew the um the effect that you think the war in ukraine is going to have the um the optimists say well look you know germany is going to have to make precisely the kind of rapid transition that you're talking about if they to get wean themselves off russian gas and oil uh the pessimists are already saying uh, let's get real. We're going to have to open up more oil fields, do more fracking and open up more pipelines because the world is not yet ready for that kind of rapid transition. Which, which way do you see it going? I think it could go one of a number of different directions. I think it could be an incredibly positive thing in which we see the kind of a kickstart and the catalyst to the kind of change which we've known has been necessary all along. We could see both, um, we could see that happening, but with also a bigger push into people wanting to retrench into exploiting more of their domestic fossil fuel supplies. But I think already we've seen with the EU unveiling its plan to cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds within a year. Um, The latent potential of what has been there all along for doing this. And actually, many of those changes were underway. If you look at what's happened in the Netherlands, 
The Netherlands was a country which is incredibly dependent upon gas. About nine out of ten homes in the Netherlands were dependent upon gas in 2018. They had, even prior to what's happening at the moment, embarked upon a plan for the radical conversion of um, homes in Holland and the uptake of heat pumps. And they're planning to see um, 200,000 homes a year from um, now onwards making the switch. Another very cold country because people always kind of wonder whether the alternatives to things like gas consumption uh, are going to are going to work but you take another kind of very cold country like finland finland was in highly dependent upon burning oil and um and wood mass and they've made the change using heat pumps as well it's a it's a technology which was kind of almost exotic in the uk barely heard of and is now sort of a, 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 almost a daily topic of debate um and the way in which the market is leaping forward is supporting the idea that that can happen i think I think what has to be argued now is that not only is the clean energy switch possible, it's demonstrable, it reuses technologies which are incredibly well proven, it draws on engineering skills which are already there, even though in the UK we do need a major skilling up for the introduction of these things. But I think we just have to make the case that it lowers costs across the board. It has a, a, a huge range of other health and well-being um, benefits. I mean, and obviously, the fact that this is the case doesn't guarantee that this is going to happen. But the more that we can put the simple facts and figures about the benefits of the clean energy switch in front of politicians, it perhaps makes it harder to stick with yesterday's technologies, which have all the problems associated with them. Because by retrenching back into fossil fuels, you still get all those other problems. And of course, ultimately, you're pulling the ecological rug from under your own feet. Um, doesn't guarantee that the right thing will happen. But I think there's both an increasing awareness of the broader benefits now, the lower costs now, the greater security that's involved in making that clean energy switch than there ever ever has been before. And we've got the examples of demonstrable success all around us. Andrew Sims, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, today. If you've uh, enjoyed this podcast, uh, Escape the Echo Chamber, go and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine, which hits the newsstands on Thursday, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, co.uk to subscribe. You can find Andrew's uh, really um, fascinating article on our website. And in the new issue, there's a great read, the cover story from the American professor Samuel Moyne on the war in the Ukraine, Reflections on Putin and what he did in Syria by Basma Kodmani, Carol Cadwallader's diary, and much, much more. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.